You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is a double feature. It is both the 2013 documentary, This Is What Winning Looks Like, and the 2019 film, The Outpost. So it's a double feature, and it's both uh, related to the Afghan war. The film, The Outpost is a retelling of the true story of the Battle of Kamdesh. Mm-hmm. It was, well, I think it's one of the most, uh, biggest battles in the Afghan war. It took place in October 3rd, 2009. Yes. And it tells the, it sort of tells the, the in that story, they're at this uh, PRT Kamdesh. It's a camp. And, it's an it's outpost, outpost. Pretty far, pretty far out of, uh, in the sticks close to the border of Pakistan. And uh, that's the primary reason it's there. They're trying to create a choke point of uh, uh, personnel moving in and material moving in and out of Pakistan because, of course, uh, the Taliban operated in both countries, in the wilds of both countries. And um, uh, they, they took the ill-advised, and they really do a good job of showing this in the film, by the way, the ill-advised route of putting this place essentially in a valley, surrounded on three sides by mountains. So in essence, if you want to imagine defending that position, just imagine yourself in a large amphitheater, and all of of the enemy are at the top of uh, the... uh, 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 seating in the amphitheater shooting down on you and that's what these guys were having to deal with yeah. bad choice and every <laughs> practically every day there's always some sort of taliban forces coming up on them and taking shots at them yes and, and this is a feature of everyday life for these guys so uh, again they do a good job there portraying everyday life the the kind of um monotony involved in this kind of duty and uh, the lengths guys go to uh uh uh, amuse themselves with this and you get all the the usual uh, colorful uh, <laughs> discussions and off-color jokes and so forth inter-service rivalry picking on each other there's a former marine in there and these guys are all army right mm-hmm. um, so they're relentlessly picking on him and it's punctuated here and there by an attack by the taliban and also punctuated because of those attacks with the loss of uh people that they've developed close ties with you know and you, you see two commanding officers lose their lives here but along with them uh, enlisted guys too and they're having to deal with this on a daily basis and another thing i think they capture well about uh, uh, uh the difficulties this introduces uh, modern warfare introduces is they also show um, these guys attempting to maintain their connections with their families back at home using those, uh, you know, military issue cell phones with the big fat antennas on them and trying to reassure people back home nothing that bad is going on and so forth. 
as attacks begin. Uh, I think they do a good job with that. Yes, uh, many times they're on the phone with their loved ones, and right when they're in the middle of that, you know, you have people from the coming down taking shots at them. Yes. And the thing they show is because we really follow this through the main character. One of the main characters is Clint Ramisha, who is is a real person, mm-hmm. and he's we follow him as he's just entering the camp. Yes. And one day they're doing sort of a recon out in the valleys, looking down. There's, He's sort of analyzing their weak points, and he says, well, one of the things that we need is the mortars, because usually when they have these little excur- incursions, when just somebody's taking shots, they can yeah. quickly take care of them as long as they get mortars on them, right. and it's over within a couple of Some mortars is the only thing that's going to be able to reach that height and have that enough of a uh, frag radius, right, so to speak, to take these people out. Yeah, but if they lose that, then they're, they're going to be in some trouble. Yeah, and it's that's a great scene, because it happens just before... You know, just before the uh, uh, approximately hour-long uh, final battle for which two people, including Ramesh, uh, um, earned medals of honor. And he's detailing exactly what he would do if he was a Taliban doing this attack. You're right. He points out the mortar. He points out the generator, right, because they have a, a TOC, right, an operations center. Uh, a modern operation center needs electricity so all those computers can run and the radios run. And he says, that's the first thing I'd knock out. I'd knock out the mortars, and then we'd be in deep trouble. And when he first arrives, the commander of the cam- of uh, Camdesh is Benjamin Keating. Mm-hmm. And he's well-liked and respected among his men, but he's not the first person to show to have been there. But one of the things he does, which is kind of what we haven't talked about it yet, but in the documentary, this is what winning is looks like, which is kind of in 2012-2013 era yeah. Afghanistan, as Obama at the time was announcing that he was planning on slowly but surely removing all the forces from Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. one of the things um, Keating is doing is constantly having these sort of peacekeeping meetings with the villagers and the elders around the local area yeah he promises to give them funding for helping out villages all sorts of various things for medical or educational or whatever mm-hmm. in response that they don't have problems with the taliban or they do not you know take up arms with the taliban right allow their sons to yes because most of these guys on these shirt they're called shura councils right mm-hmm. they're older men uh, what are what uh, they refer to here as elders, right? And this is basically uh, it's uh, the social organization that's been in Afghanistan for ages, especially in those mountainous regions. Basically, uh, small tribal units with uh, elders running the show, and the uh, younger men, fighting age men, uh, uh, typically um, um, taking up with whichever warlord happens to be the strongest in the area not only to protect his own hide but to protect his family's hide and so what the americans are trying to do is convince these uh elders that um, um they should not let their sons take up with the taliban and um it doesn't come across quite as strongly in um the outpost, but I think it comes across very strongly, and this is what winning looks like. Um, you can see them making these prudential calculations, uh, and you can imagine that they've done the same thing when the Russians were in there and the British were in there. You know, you guys will be leaving, and when you leave, we have to make those prudential decisions that will keep us 
and our families safe. So uh, we're going to end up going with the Taliban, if not then, maybe even now, uh, in areas where you guys uh, don't have a consistent long-term presence. And um, that's what they're thinking. You can see them thinking that by the, their body language and how they're reacting to these attempts by the Americans to uh, um, convince them not to take this prudential route, which is all they've ever done. And you can see it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. Yeah, and when, at least when we see in the beginning, Keating's been at this for a while, he develops some sort of trust, I would say, with those elders. Like, he even gets some of the younger men to lay down their arms, even though it was like, yeah, I know some of you were probably there at our yes. uh, at camp this morning taking shots at us, but we'll, yeah. we'll let that slide for now. We'll, we want peace. Yeah. But early on, due to a thing by the army, because they have this giant tanker truck in the middle of their camp, yes, they tell tells them that they need it back. So he has to drive this along the mountains with these very small roads. Yes, one little slip and that thing falls down, and that's exactly what happens. Yeah. He falls down off the side of the the mountain and he falls to his death. And they have a new camp, and you can see once he's gone, they no longer have that respect. Yes, that. that relationship has been damaged because the next guy comes in he doesn't last very long yes. and he gets killed by an ied and then the third guy comes in broward who's not even well liked among his own men yes and so it's this constant reshuffling of commanders and that that yeah and even in the best case scenarios you, you ran into that in afghanistan when people would rotate out uh, after a, a tour of duty who had developed these kinds of connections um and uh, that discontinuity again is something the Afghans read. They're they're not stupid. They read this and they they realize that they're going to have to uh, think prudentially on the longer term and take the uh, path of least resistance, so to speak. And um, you see that uh, I think you you see that uh, more so in the documentary than you do um, in. Uh, the outpost. Um, and you also see, I think, the endemic nature of corruption more in the documentary than you do in the outpost. You do see it in the outpost to some extent, but um, those powerful scenes with Major Stuber, mm. where he's explaining in detail what these guys are doing to take advantage of the, yeah, the lack Afghan of information. Yes, yes, the lack of information the Americans have. Um, uh, further up the command chain, you know, State Department and so forth. Even uh, General McChrystal doesn't come off terribly well in this thing either. It's being too far removed from the front lines to understand what's really going on. And he has there's that one scene where he's, he, he, he points out this row of derelict pickup trucks, small like S-10 pickup trucks that the Afghans uh, had used at one time. They're obviously damaged. And he says they report these as all functioning because that way they will, they know they will get from us and from uh, the uh, Afghan national government, such as it is, uh, petrol, <coughs> gas. And uh, uh, they can turn around and sell that on the black market. And then the major says, you know, I've got a difficult choice here to make in that regard. If you crack down on the corruption... Uh, there will be an utter collapse of these units, and they will not cooperate with us at all. Um, on the other hand, if you allow it to go on like this, 
um, you get this centrif- centrif- centrifugal self-interest also corrupting any kind of nascent local government we're trying to form. And he sees this is like a, the horns of a terrible dilemma, and he, he, he doesn't know what to do about it, doesn't know if anything actually can be done about it. And in a way, he's kind of resigned himself to do as best as he possibly can, given those limiting circumstances. Now, you see that to some extent in the outpost, too, especially when it comes to uh, uh, these uh, uh, the Americans trying to uh, convince the the elders and the other Afghans around that uh, uh, in the long run it would be better for them to actually put the effort forward to f- forming local government and not cooperating with the Taliban and so forth. But they see those countervailing pressures, and uh, it's just a very difficult, probably insoluble situation as we learned. I mean, this was America's longest war. Afghanistan is number one on the list, and uh, we learned it's much more difficult to do this uh, than you would at first think. State building is a difficult thing, not not only on a national scale, which at first I think they really thought they could do in Afghanistan, a country that really had no national government of any serious uh, consequence. and had always been kind of a, 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 a country, so to speak, if you want to describe it in that unified way, run by warlords, competing warlords. That's the way it's always been. So they thought, well, maybe this is a little unrealistic. And time period of these two films, they were thinking, well, let's just try and build it locally. You know, screw a national government. Let's just focus on our area here and try to get these guys to uh, um, work with us uh, creating what in effect are kind of in the Vietnam War were called strategic hamlets um, and areas of security that the Taliban can't use uh, as bases of operation and logistics. Um, but they found even, uh, even that more restrained goal um, was, uh, if not impossible, very difficult to attain. And it's very frustrating to watch this. Yeah, and, and it's not even we talk about how you were saying they were exploiting the fact that you know we'll report these obviously not working vehicles as working so we can get and make money off of it, but the other just horrible types of corruption that are going on with the ANSF, the Afghan police force. Yes, there's bribes, there's heavy drug abuse. Yes, you see them just trying to do routine training exercises, and they're either high on either pot or even heavier stuff like heroin. Yep. The worst part about this is that there is pedophilia rampant yes among ansf and we talked about major stuber he's confronted them about this and yep the defenses some of the people make who are even somehow involved in this are horrible i'm not going to repeat what they say but it's it's can't disgusting that they're actually saying something yeah. so despicable it is utterly despicable the practice is called bacha bazi and it's also uh, referred to as uh tea boys right they, they they serve chai tea to these elders and this this is a practice that is uh, long-term and endemic to Afghanistan because of the very strict uh, misogynistic rules, uh, laws they have, uh, not allowing women to go out in public and so forth. So these men uh, uh, take out their sexual frustrations on young boys. 
You're right. And this was one of the things that um, Americans uh, had to deal with when they were over there, as we see in that documentary. Um, this one particular person who was the head of the that Af- local Afghan police force that um, uh, Major Stuber was working with was sent away with a promise uh, from the people that took him away that uh, he would never return. Well, he's returned, and he, he's apparently not changed his ways at all. Yeah, you even and, see him on camera. Yeah, he was on camera. He wasn't ashamed to show his face. And then, the, the man, you're talking about that Stuber is trying to convince um, uh, to go on a raid, actually, uh, to uh, rescue some of these boys. Uh, you can see in his body language, he's not really interested in doing this, and he's justifying it. Like you said, I won't, I won't repeat the justifications. That, uh, they're truly repugnant. And at, at, at that end of the conversation, he, he placates Stuber. Stuber, I think, wants to believe that he's actually going to do the, carry through with the raid, which is supposed to happen the next day. Lo and behold, the next day comes, and Stuber gets a, I think it's a text on his phone from this guy saying um, the, the, the raid is off. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things that uh, is particularly infuriating about this practice in terms of strategic implications is... Uh, the Taliban sold themselves to the um, Afghan populace uh, as a force that would get rid of this practice. And they did. The the practice went underground while they were in control of the the country. Well, when they they were in control of the country, they also allowed uh, Al-Qaeda to base there. So when we went in, uh, to uh, uh, take out al-Qaeda there and the Afghan war started, um, the t- Taliban retreated from the cities like Kabul, etc., right? And um, uh, retreated into the mountainous highlands uh, where uh, they were during this uh, uh, film and this documentary. Um, and the practice resurfaced. So... Unfortunately for America, the general populace read that as being as uh, indicating the Americans had no problem with that practice. The people that didn't like it, right? So they said, "Well, you're no better than the Taliban. You're allowing this to happen." And you have the countervailing pressure that uh, um, in, in these various um, local areas where the Americans are trying to set up a functioning police. Uh, constabulary um, very often the only personnel that ever uh, took up police roles were people that undertook this practice mm-hmm. and you you, you see it, this is only one example in this documentary but it happened across the country you, there were multiple instances of Americans being forced to take these guys back either by their own command remarkably enough higher up in the chain or by their uh, Afghan allies. Another intractable, insoluble problem. Um, and they do a good job of showing this um, in the documentary, especially. And the, the, I think the um, amount of moral injury that occurs from it um, on the part of the Americans who are trying to 
set up this uh, either local or national state or police force and have it be something that's decent and moral and realizing we're probably going to fail in this and taking on the guilt and the repercussions that has on you as an individual. Look, I'm acquiescing in this guy coming back or I'm being forced to acquiesce with this guy coming back. That takes its toll. And you can see that with Major Stuber. Yeah, and one of the things, the other heartbreaking scene in that documentary is when there is actually a uh, visit on one of their the bases by a, not only the U.S. ambassador, but a U.K. ambassador, too. Yes, yes. And he wants to learn, and this was like, this area is one of the more dangerous areas of Afghanistan, and Stuber is there. Yeah. And he wants, so they're asking for progress reports, what is, and... It's all nothing but glowing reviews saying, oh, yeah, we've, it's, it's just little pockets of resistance now. We're, it's now on the Afghan police forces. They even show him like this promotional little video of yeah. how safe it is. Yeah. And it's all nothing but glowing praise. And both the ambassadors are like, well, this is great. And then they go on their helicopters and leave. That, with the, uh, yeah. And, and they and report their superiors. All is good. And, and they don't want to know the truth. Because if you remember, the filmmaker says, you know, I went after this meeting that was full of PR and glitz and falsehood. Um, I went up to, I think he said he went up to the Canadian ambassador. I don't remember. Or the, the UK. I'm sorry, the, the UK guy. It might have been the American. I don't remember. He might have done both. Possibly. But he said, I have a suggestion for you. See that man over there? He points to Major Stuber. Why don't you go ask him what's really going on? And both of them refuse because I, I don't think they wanted to know the truth. Yeah, and you could see the look on Stuber's face when he has to see that particular uh, video. He's and he like don't ask. It's frustrating. He's like, if you talk to him or just any of the other people, you would know what's going on. Yes. And one of the things that doesn't get talked about, obviously, in this one because it's mainly focusing on the Afghanistan mm-hmm. ca- campaign. Yeah. But if. Also, just a year after we started Afghanistan, we moved into Iraq and occupied there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we pulled out of Afghanistan a couple of years ago, there was a lot in the news, a lot of anger. But when we, like, we could even ask, when did we pull out of Iraq? I don't think a lot of people even know. So you wonder, is the situation in Iraq similar to what's going on in Afghanistan? Yeah, it's uh, a good question. Um, I would, uh, my read on uh, the situation in Iraq as Compared to Afghanistan, it's a little bit better. It's a little bit better. They have more of a functioning state. Um, there are troubling ties to Iran, though, because of the Shia connection between the two countries. But um, um, it, I think, is probably going to be, it's probably still, uh, uh, by our terms, very corrupt. Um, but it is a unified state more so than Afghanistan. And to be fair, it always was compared to Afghanistan. Afghanistan has always been that kind of warlord territory. That's the way it's been. That's why nobody can, along with the geography, that's why nobody can conquer it. Um, But uh, Iraq, I think we have to count as a a minor success um, in that I don't think it would uh, any longer function as a base for al-Qaeda or similar uh, operations. Now, has ISIS grown in there since we left? Uh, it's, it's, it did for a time, but uh, uh, that was effectively squelched during the Obama administration, actually, I think. Um, but um, it's, it's a functioning state that has its own state self-interest uh, uh, to uh, 
occupy it. And for that reason, I don't think it will ever allow the kind of activity that uh, Saddam Hussein did when he was there. Um, so I think it's marginally improved. Um, I think Afghanistan uh, returned to the status quo previous to the war. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's changed at all. I, I think it's it even literally still run by the Taliban. I mean, um, that's what happened. Um, I think they they realized that if they wanted to host uh, terrorists in the mountainous regions, they probably could do it again. Um, whether they do that or not, I don't know. But uh, they're certainly not a friend of the United States. And uh, Afghanistan's a little, or sorry, Iraq's a little bit closer to being that than than Afghanistan is. And I remember when we when the news came out. Just I guess it's now been almost two years mm-hmm. when we pulled out of Afghanistan. One of the pictures that was shown was one of the last American helicopters leaving one of the areas, and that obviously called back what happened nearly 50 years ago when Saigon fell and the last American helicopters were leaving there. And there's been that talk uh, post-American foreign policy, post-World War II, the idea of a world police. Yeah. And people are frustrated. Like, what we happened in Vietnam is we, you know, the um, North Vietnamese took over the entire country. What's happened in Taliban has now taken over Afghanistan. It's that frustration. If we're going in there, we're doing this. We better make sure we get the job done and not do it halfway or do it to the point where the minute we pull out, it just goes back to the status quo. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that... Or we just don't go there at all. Yeah, and the, the lesson, I think the lesson learned uh, uh, in Afghanistan and lesser extent Iraq is the extreme amount of difficulty that is involved in state building as a goal of military intervention. Um, and it's, it's probability of success is low simply because we don't have the manpower and resources and the patience as a country to carry it out. The one exception I can think, and there's probably others, but the one that leaps to mind to me as being an exception to that is the success we had with post-war Japan and to a lesser extent post-war Germany. I think Germany had a, enough of a... Um, uh, a remnant of democracy in a, a state that was basically democratic, even though the Nazis had been in power to where they, they could successfully accomplish this. And the Japanese, to some extent, did too. But there was a radical cultural change there that we managed to make. And you have to give uh, General MacArthur credit for this. <laughs> he had a lot of faults, but he had patience. Um, and... Uh, the United States made the very difficult choice of retaining uh, Hirohito in order to pull this off. In the long run, I think it worked. But that, I think, is a relatively uh, unusual and rare instance of a success in that regard. Another possibility would be the Philippines. Over the long term, we uh, uh, made a functioning and independent Uh, democracy out of the Philippines as well after some warfare and some rather gruesome warfare at that. Um, But you contrast that with the case with Afghanistan and Iraq um, and you see state building is going to be extremely difficult uh, and maybe will ultimately fail because we're expecting too much of our soldiers and we're expecting too much of the American public to um, 
uh, be patient enough. We're, we're classically impatient with military operations. We want to get them done um, to do that because it may take uh, half a century to do it, some, do it with unpromising uh, ground uh, such as Afghanistan because there's no cultural, not enough of a cultural uh, uh, seedbed there to, to get a, as it were, Jeffersonian democracy running. I mean, they're, they're so far removed from that, it's unrealistic to expect you can do it. Um, now, in the case of Vietnam, uh, I don't know if we were so much state-building there. Uh, there were elements of, uh, in the U.S. government that were trying to get South Vietnam to look more like us, but there were other elements that were realistic about uh, the nature of the government there particular under uh, Diem, who was uh, um, uh, the president of Vietnam in the late 50s and early 60s. He ended up being assassinated um, um, in 1963, shortly before Kennedy was assassinated. Um, he was, by our standards, not a Democrat uh, and autocratic, but um, he nevertheless had started, I think, successfully uh, creating a a functional state there that was, I think, a promising alternative to the communist North Vietnamese model of statehood. Um, but tragically, he was, like I said, assassinated um, after some um, uh, uprising, uprisings of uh, uh, Buddhist monks. One of them famously burned himself. Um, there's a lot of recent... Uh, uh, evidence that suggests that the, the, those Buddhist monks were, in, in fact, uh, sponsored by and, in some cases, uh, uh, communist, and they were doing this on purpose to sow unrest in the government there, because he had a lot of Buddhists in his government, eight Buddhists on his cabinet. Um, but um, once he fell, uh, there was a significant uh, period of unrest and near chaos in South Vietnam. Uh, a string of unsuccessful uh, rulers, uh, generals, um, took his place until eventually Thieu, Thieu uh, in 1965, took over. And over the course of the war, up until 72, um, the United States had managed to prop him up, and he, I think, would have been able to sustain that state in a manner similar to South Korea. But unfortunately, after the Paris Peace Accords were signed, uh, by that time the American uh, public was extremely unhappy with this war. And um, neither the public nor the Congress wanted to follow through on promises Nixon had made to uh, provide continued material, no troops, occasional air support, um, and let the South Vietnamese fight their uh, fight their own battles with the North Vietnamese. So tragically, what happened in 1975, after Congress had completely cut off funding, was uh, the North Vietnamese literally made a highway out of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and just moved tons of men material down there and uh, took over the country. Um, so in the long run, it turns out to be a, 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 a that was a failure uh, again, once again in if not building a state, at least sustaining a state uh, on the part of the United States. But um, I think 
in, in that way, it's fundamentally different than the Afghanistan case. We weren't trying to build from scratch. And it's a tragedy in both cases, because as you pointed out, you had uh, uh, people that had worked with the Americans and come to depend on the Americans for security uh, for their, themselves and their families uh, in terror while we withdraw. You, you mentioned the famous shot of the helicopter leaving the uh, Saigon. Uh, those are South Vietnamese civilians hanging onto the rails of that helicopter. Um, the scenes in Afghanistan are huge transport planes. Um, and people at that airport, Bagram Air, Air Base, um, by the thousands, scared to death, literally trying to hold on to that plane as we're pulling out. Um, that's a disturbing image because there are a lot of people that not only grew dependent on us in terms of the security we were able to provide, such as it was, but a lot of people that worked with Americans, translators, uh, intelligence people, police, the ones that were functional, <laughs> right? There were people in Kabul that were competent professionals. Um, all of those people uh, came under existential threat when we left. And a great many of them died. And uh, again, n not a great episode for uh, America. And, and, and you see that there was some hope, maybe, because even Stuber was talking about Hamid Khan, one of the mm -hmm. heads, and he he says he had he says he's not perfect, but you know he if he's one of the good ones as far as that. Yes. You can see we follow late in the documentary this group of guys who are taking out IEDs, and even the documentary's time they're taking they're taking care of these. They're doing it good. good. They seem they seem competent at their job. They're even enjoying their job. Mm -hmm. So you see, like there might have been seeds. Yeah. But one of the things Khan also does is when he's doing the same thing we see in the outpost of talking to elders and he's trying to recruit people to fight against the Taliban and it's just not working falling on deaf ears. Deaf yep. ears because he even knows like, well, the U.S. is going to be, we hear they were going to pull out soon, so why should we back you? Yes. And it, that scene sort of recalls to me a same scene, both the book and the movie of Catch 22, when one of the guys is talking to this elderly Italian man. He's talking about, you know, when the fascists and Mussolini took over, I was pro-fascist. When Hitler took over, I was pro-Nazi. Yep. Now that the Americans in, I'm pro-democracy. It is that idea of I'm backing whatever's the smartest bet. Right. It's the idea of, look, I'm not going to bet against you guys. You guys are going to be out. I go back you guys, then I'm going to get killed. Yeah. I'm either stay stay in the sidelines and let this thing wash over and just back whoever is, which in this case would probably be the Taliban. And that that has been going on for centuries there, and it's very very difficult to argue with that. And uh, in the case of Hamid Khan, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's the other element they bring up in the documentary with him is he he was uh, uh, very much aligned with the Northern Alliance, and those were people that we had worked with as allies. And um, there are uh, frictions behind uh, tribal frictions um, between the Northern Alliance and the Pashtuns, and uh, they don't trust them. They had, a, they had a, pic a couple of pictures of famous commanders of uh, the Northern Alliance on their cars because they justifiably feel proud of these guys as uh, you know former leaders, uh, martyred leaders in the, both cases. But um, the Pashtuns, Pashtuns don't see them that way. 
because they went through and, and during military oper operations, they killed a lot of civilians, right? So they don't, they don't see it that way. And he's a little oblivious to that. Um, but you can see, though, he really makes an effort to uh, forge connections and make people think longer term. You know, if you guys can just provide yourselves security over the longer term, you do not have to play that, um, that betters game that you're always having to play. And, you know, he, I don't know if he's going to make that case or not, because um, it, it makes sense uh, that you'll have long term security if you have the rule of law and a objective and fair and unbiased police force but it's a hell of a lot it's hard to build something like that it's not easy to do you have to get buy-in and you have to get buy-in over an extended period of time um, easier to do in more urban areas harder to do out in the sticks out in the mountains where the taliban are always around just like the Viet Cong were always around in south vietnam um, part of the success of the strategic hamlet program in south vietnam that uh uh, DM instituted was they were able to create those islands of stability and the Viet Cong were not able to overtake these areas at night when the Americans left. We never got that far in Afghanistan. Never never succeeded in that regard, primarily because of geography. It is just mountainous like you wouldn't believe. Um, but you still see that, you're right, the, kind of the inklings of a national leader there in Hamid Khan. Well, as far as I know, now he is a general. <laughs> in the national uh, Afghan National Army. He's moved up the chain of command. Um, again, such as it is. Um, it'd be kind of curious to see what happens with him, especially with that tension between uh, the Northern Alliance and the Taliban. I'm very curious to see what happens there. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, which episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. Heads up for our next episode, we've decided to discuss the 2016 film Silence, directed by Martin Scorsese. Be sure to watch that if you want to not have any spoilers. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.